Hello and welcome to the podcast of Tech EU. This is our episode number 138, recorded on October 7th, 2019. Today we will talk about pitch that's going live soon, about recent funding deals in Germany, the story of a digital profit, about e-scooters at Oktoberfest, and much more. We will also run a conversation with Sasha Michaud, the co-founder of Glovo. And if you are a regular listener, you probably remember that we already had an interview with him at some point, so this is going to be a nice update recorded by Robin Wouters, our editor. I am your host, Andrei Degler, joined today by our research lead, Natalie Novik. Hey, Natalie, how's life? Hi, Andre. It's going well over here. How are you? Yeah, fine too. It's getting colder and colder, but the event uh, season is uh, there, so I'm going to be on the move uh, quite a bit in the next few weeks. How about yourself? Yeah, so next week I'm heading to Dublin for SaaS talk, which I'm really looking forward to. And then the week after that, I'm going back again to Dublin for Startup Week Dublin, which is one of my favorite events of the year. And I'm actually on the organizing committee and kind of behind some of the scenes there. And I really enjoy being a part of that event. It sounds like a good plan. Yeah, I'm going to be in Amsterdam later this week for uh, uh, World Summit AI, probably for a day, and uh, uh, then taking a little bit of a break. But uh, And then there's going to be a web summit, where I hope we will be uh, able to go together and record a podcast there as well. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. And hopefully it all comes together. So fingers crossed. Now, let us talk about the news, and I wanted to talk about something I'm really excited about, actually, which is the funding round of Pitch, and it looks like uh, this long-awaited solution to the presentation collaboration problem is going to be finally released really soon. So the company, the German company, which was founded by the creator of Wunderlist, uh, has just raised $30 million and launched closed beta testing of its product. Now, although I'm not usually engaged in a collaboration on uh, slide decks uh, these days, being a freelance journalist, I'm very interested in uh, how Pitch will look like at the end. And in case you've missed it, uh, here's a quick overview of what Pitch is all about. So its founder, as I said, uh, uh, Christian Reber, is also the founder of Wunderlist, uh, which is a popular to-do app that he sold to Microsoft a few years ago. And he's kind of regretting it uh, right now, I think, but I will mention that uh, later and explain what I mean. So after the deal with Microsoft was done, uh, Reber predictably went on to found another startup, which uh, is now billed as the ultimate way for teams to create presentations. It is, in my opinion, indeed a problem worth solving, uh, because uh, back when I worked uh, in communications, I had shopped around trying to find a good way to share slides and templates to keep the presentations on brand and not to make people create all the slides from uh, scratch and take lots of time. But everything I found was just abysmal in terms of usability and required a ridiculous amount of work to maintain. So I don't think I actually ended up uh, paying for uh, any of those solutions because they were really bad. I also had like a dream uh, of sorts uh, of somehow connecting the slides to data sources uh, so that uh, they would be automatically updated with uh, some uh, key numbers uh, for uh, for the company. But I didn't see any good way to do it at all. And now 
pitch is promising to include all I wanted and more, so I'm really excited to see uh, what's going to happen. So it's taken pitch 21 months since the company was founded to launch the private beta, uh, which by startup standards is ages. Uh, Robin, our editor, uh, asked uh, Reber in a recent interview uh, what took him so long, uh, to which he answered that it was the initial plan of the company, and he said that the team gave itself two years before inviting the first customers, and uh, they definitely wanted to polish everything to make the experience perfect from the get-go and I guess this is the big difference between uh, B2C and B2B software because with uh, B2B you often don't get the second chance if the first version of your product is bad and uh, private customers uh, uh, tend to be much more forgiven. So it seems like Rebor has learned a bunch of lessons from Wunderlist and one of them is hopefully that the founder should think twice or thrice before selling its startup to a corporate giant. So Microsoft has been sitting on uh, Wunderlist for a while, but then announced uh, that uh, it would shut it down and, and uh, then replace it to, with uh, uh, Microsoft To Do, so the homegrown application, which, as far as I understand, uh, took in at least some of the features of Wunderlist. So here is a quote from uh, Reber on uh, that topic. The quote begins. I think Microsoft To-Do is a solid replacement for many people, but not the ultimate To-Do app that people deserve. Microsoft went radio silent on me some time ago, and I actually offered a buyback many times before I tweeted about it recently. That's the only reason I made my offer public in the first place. I published a public roadmap for what I would do with it. Even competitors got excited about seeing Wunderlist coming back, but I guess at this point it's quite clear that Microsoft prefers to retire a product that people love rather than give it back to me. The quote ends. So I hope that nothing of this sort will happen to Pitch, and I'm very much looking forward to checking it out when it launches publicly. Also, if you're a Pitch employee listening to this and would like to offer me a sneak peek at the software, hit me up. I'm very much ready to that. Natalie, do you work a lot with presentations these days? Um, I still do work a bit with presentations, but not often collaboratively. Um, but I've been very excited to hear about this product because we've been hearing about it for such a long time now. And time really is a luxury in the startup world. So it will be very compelling to see what this product looks like when it's finally, finally comes out because over this long spooling up time, the expectations have gotten really high. Yeah, my expectations are very lofty, I have to say. But also, I think it sort of tells a lot about how hard uh, the task is because uh, like for in two years since pitch was announced for the first time no other startup actually decided to uh, kind of get uh, something else uh, out in this uh, particular space so i think uh, no one else dared to try and uh, go into this uh... it, it does kind of make me wonder a bit about the market size on this sort of product, because if you're looking at very highly data intensive products, usually the data software that you're using has very good integrations that are being updated continually. And when it comes to doing a presentation, you'd always be doing something in a final form. So that's the one concern I have, and maybe something that might speak to why we haven't seen the competitors but it, it is um, something that I am very looking forward to. And I just believe that it's going to be as transformative as uh, Slack was for uh, internal communications, let's say. So, Natalie, you wanted to talk more about uh, the funding in Germany, right? Yeah, and um, 
Just kind of following your story. So at TechEU, our research team analyzes about 240 different media sources each week to find information about funding deals around Europe and to look into where investment is going into European tech. And the team has been doing this for a while, developing a data set of deals that goes back about five years, covering all of continental Europe and a few other places, including Israel, Russia, and Turkey. But following your story, Andre, about pitch, when I was looking at the deal flow from the last week, something really stood out. And that was about 25% of the deals that we reported on last week went to companies in Germany. So this includes funding rounds, mergers, and acquisitions reporting. So is this a kind of, does this represent a new trend that we're seeing more and more investment into Germany? Or is the German tech ecosystem taking off? Or maybe does it speak to a seasonality of the data here that because a lot of deals are being done right now, is it say something about the investment cycle in Germany or what? So there's been some big deals to announce. So Andre, you were just talking about pitch, but also last week, Barzalan, which is one of my most favorite European startups of all time. They were just acquired for 22 million euros. And the Berlin-based Amboss, which is a knowledge platform for medical professionals, just raised a 30 million euro Series B. And also Grover, which is another company from Berlin, raised a 41 million euro round for their tech rental platform. So kind of speaking to this, is Germany really cornering the market on VC investment? So what's going on here? And well, the answer is that it's complicated. And deal flow is something I think there is a lot of misconceptions about. So I thought that this week we would look into that data a little bit more. And I wanted to give you some news that you could use and share a bit about how to analyze deal flow from this researcher's perspective. So when you are looking at deal flow, there are a few things that stand out. First, to be able to make strong inferences about trends, you need to have a good idea about the population of deals. That is, the total amount of deals that are being done during a given time period. To know the entire population of deals, you have to have pretty complete data. But this is hard in tech and venture capital for a few key reasons. First, so number one, not all deal flow is reported. And this is a real big one. No matter how hard you search, it is not possible to know the entire constellation of deals that were done that week. At TechEU, we get information from a lot of different sources. We do our best to cover everything that's out there, but it will always be unknown how many deals were actually made because funding deals are generally made between private companies, VCs, and startups. So not everything is reported. Things are kept quiet deliberately. For example, there are still a lot of things being done in stealth mode. So stealth companies that haven't even been disclosed that we don't even know about. And it's not possible to know how many of those deals are being made. Then, which complicates things further, not all the deals will be publicly disclosed to the media. In this case, you tend to see country-level differences and even vertical-level differences in how things are reported. For example, in fintech, SaaS, and things in the B2C space, you are more likely to see a funding deal reported on than investments in other verticals, such as deep tech or med tech. So even when deals are not kept private, they're just, they're just not announced. So the information there will always be incomplete. Another complication is that sometimes you get somewhat of a hybrid situation where the deal is announced, but not the amount. I mentioned previously that you will find country-level reporting differences, and this case is often very common in Germany, for example. 
Last week, seven of the German funding deals that TechEU identified did not have the valuation attached. This happens frequently, and what that results in is often speculative reporting, such as last week, a suggestion of a, quote, seven-figure sum into Quobite, or a high six-figure sum into Hamburg startup Komodo. In other cases, such as an investment by SEKeep Ventures into ShiftPlan, which is a SaaS B2B product that helps companies schedule shift work for their employees, you have no indication of the amount whatsoever. You just know that it happened. This often makes it pretty tough if you're looking at yearly trends to know exactly how much investment actually went into German companies. No matter what is reported in these yearly roundup pieces, the actual value will be impossible to know. A further complication to these figures is due to reporting lags. These things happen pretty frequently also. Sometimes the reporting lag can be very long, and there are some reasons for this. News might be being used strategically for PR and often for recruiting purposes. In every case, individual companies, founders, and investors have their own prerogatives when it comes to reporting. So the bottom line here is you have to take all reported figures on investment as proxies. It makes comparing countries to one another very difficult and always unreliable. So I imagine for many of you, when you get to this point, you might be asking yourself, so what is the whole point of all this? And I think in a lot of cases, people see the press around deal flow, and there's a tendency to get caught up in the hype, suggesting that it's sometimes something meaningful, especially when you're stacking countries up against one another. But where the data is more useful is when you're comparing countries to themselves over time. So in this case, if we look at Germany last year and this year around this time, we begin to see that we might be onto something with an upward trend in investment. Things do look like they are heating up, but one week, of course, is pretty limiting, and this is a pretty standout week. So I think it's important to remember that when looking at funding data, you need to keep the bigger picture in mind and make sure you recognize its limitations. There are many moving parts here, and that's why it's so interesting and exciting to follow these deals in European tech. But in some cases, you have to embrace uncertainty. You don't always know what will happen next. So from what you just said, am I understanding correctly that if you want to make a good comparison, it might make sense to actually look at the number of deals rather than uh, the volume, because this is a, a uh, metric that would be better reported? Definitely. Looking at the number of deals always is a better sort of figure to use because it will tend to be a bit more complete. Because if you're just looking at the total funding volume, you can't capture things like a six-figure round into company X or company Y because there just isn't anything to report there. We don't have a completely certain figure. Right. And I know you focus on Europe in your research, but do you know if it's very much different in the U.S.? So what's different in Europe as compared to the U.S. is in the U.S. you tend to have a more predictable reporting of tech deals. So companies that are based in the U.S. tend to report deals in sort of the same way. Um, and in Europe, you have a lot of differences between countries, between verticals, um, which makes often doing these comparisons really hard. Um, whereas in the U.S., you have a whole lot of a lot 
bigger space and a lot of companies there that tend to be acting somewhat in the same way. Um, and this is kind of a, maybe somewhat of a cultural difference, um, for example. And in the UK, the reporting style and kind of how, how they do things is very different than in Germany, obviously, and in France. So that's what kind of highlights some of those differences. So these cross-national comparisons are really tough. Right. So there must be really good methodology in any research uh, done. Yeah, and I think one one point of this is it is you have to really recognize that the limitations of some of this reporting, and especially you see this between verticals as well. Um, if you have no idea what the amount of unknowns are, um, it does limit how much leverage you can have when it comes to highlighting is there a trend for more deals in fintech, for example, or there's greater investment going into health tech. This this can make making some of those those calculations pretty tricky. And I have to say that acknowledging the limitations seems to be something that, in my opinion, a lot of uh, reports in Europe are not that great at. Because, I mean, I get it. Probably if you just write down all the limitations, everything that could be wrong in that report, then uh, every reader would just think, okay, why am I actually reading this if it could be that inaccurate? But then just omitting it in full is also not not a great idea. Is that something you see as well? Yeah. And I think you're right with that, Andre, is that it is uncomfortable, I think, for people, especially when reporting some data to highlight the um, limitations of that data. But I think it is the honest thing to do and to really, as a reader of, of these reports, to always look at things with a critical eye and to always look for where there is possibly a hole or are they making a justification that goes too far coming up towards the end of the year? We start seeing a lot of these different roundup reports about different trends, different sectors, verticals, um, country comparisons. So really another um, kind of call of action to look at these things with a critical eye. Not everything is quite as it seems. I don't want to go as far as saying fake news, but um, just be an informed reader and, um, and do your homework there. Absolutely. Thanks for sharing this. Now, let's get on with the agenda. And now we have a great conversation uh, between Sasha Michaud, the co-founder of Glovo, and our editor, Robin Wouters. Let's listen to it together. And we'll be back in about 10 minutes to talk about uh, the digital profit, e-scooters at Oktoberfest, and more. Hey, this is Robin Walters for Tech.eu, and I'm here at uh, France Digital Day in Paris, sitting now with Sasha Michaud, who's the co-founder of Glovo. Uh, but I don't want to talk about Glovo. Let's talk about your jockeying days. Oh, <laughs> tell, tell us about that. Yeah, I shouldn't have mentioned that to you. That's um, Yeah, yeah. I started my professional career at the ripe age of 16 uh, as a jockey in, in the UK. I left home and you know went, went to start racing. I raced uh, for three, just over three years in the UK and then uh, spent a, a year in the US riding before I came to Europe. And decided to learn programming. I love that backstory. But let's uh, maybe focus on Glovo. Uh, maybe for those who don't know, what is Glovo in a nutshell? Glovo is 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 an app that lets you know users or customers order anything they want in the city, in your city, within within pretty much 30, 35 minutes. Um, so it's very similar to the, the food delivery apps, but we'll not only bring you food from the best restaurants, we'll, we'll work, bring you groceries, we'll bring you pharmacy, we'll work with the local retailers. In fact, we'll pick up your keys if you've left them at home. Um, so we're much more than a f- food app and therefore, um, you know, customers, as long as we have the, the best restaurants in the city, which we tend to do, they'll be more sticky to our app because we'll do a lot more other things. 
And it's the wow stuff like when you forgot your keys or you have a headache at one in the morning and, and we come and fix it or bring bring some diapers or nappies for your for your baby. Right. Um, it's the wow stuff that, that people really love us. But can, can you provide me with a rough breakdown? Like how much of it is food rather than, than things? It really depends on the market, to be fair. Um, today we're in uh, 26 cities worldwide. Um, 200, that's over 200 cities. Um, and in fact, we touch four continents. We're in Southern Europe, Latin America, um, Eastern Europe, Africa, And, and in the Middle East. So, so we're all over the place and really depends on, on the, in, in Europe, it, it's close, uh, food delivery would be close to 70% of, of orders in Southern Europe. In Latin, it's, a, it's less and there's more widespread. Um, but having said that, groceries is, is the segment or the category that's fastest growing. And as you probably know, we, we recently signed a, a global agreement with Carrefour um, to help them expand their delivery footprint on groceries but also integrate with us so we can offer uh, more products for our customers so what kind of numbers are we talking now like total orders per month uh, total employees uh, give me some uh, some basic facts and <laughs> figures i guess um so we got a uh, thousand close to thousand three hundred employees um across all the different offices most of those well the largest percentage in barcelona which is around 500 which is our headquarters we're engineering um mostly operation staff corporate um but we're spread out um, worldwide. We've got a hub in, in Latin America, in Buenos Aires, with a lot of people. And um, we should be getting close. I think um, this month we'll be getting close to, I think, 4.5, 4.8 million orders a month. Um, And how close does it bring you to profitability? Southern Europe's operationally profitable. Um, we're super focused on profitability. Uh, as you know, we're, we're competing with giants. Um, pretty much all of them much better funded than us, with deeper pockets, billionaires, in fact. Um, so we have to be super lean and we're very focused on profitability. We want to depend on ourselves. Um, we want to get to the position where we're profitable. So it's Southern Europe, which is our most mature market. Uh, that's Spain, Portugal, Italy, France is, um, is operationally profitable, has been for a while. And very shortly we'll, we'll be hitting that in Latin America and, and hopefully in the emerging, more emerging markets, which is Eastern Europe, Africa. And we have that vision. We're, we're very focused on that. At the same time, we find, we find opportunities where we think we can, we can launch and be leader um, or co-leader. I think it's very important to be one of the first two in the market. Uh, what's your fastest growing market now? I think you mentioned Eastern Europe earlier. Uh, and why is that? Yeah, East, Eastern Europe is, is, is going well. Uh, we're very happy how that's going. I think it's a number of things. I think maybe a lack of, a lack of um, incumbents. What I mean is lack of um, traditional operators who do, the, do it well. Um, gives an opportunity to suddenly, with our UX and great service, customers will move. We've got good partners there. Um, so Eastern Europe is one of the, it's certainly an area which is growing very quickly. Yeah. Um, so I was at the LSA uh, last night where I had uh, President uh, Macron announce, you know, five billion euros of uh, five billion euros worth of private investment going to startups in the next three years. Uh, at least that's the plan. Uh, so that brings us to the topic of funding. You're one of the best uh, funded companies in Europe. You look at you look up at the giants that are competing with you, uh, but then a lot of companies are looking up to you because you're one of these these companies that are really scaling scaling quite nicely. So um, maybe just uh, again facts and figures, like how much uh, have you raised and who are your main investors uh, right now? Yeah, we've um, we've received all together in all the rounds to the last one, which was in April, uh, 310 million uh, euros, and uh, we have. You know, investors like Lakestar, Rakuten, Seaya, uh, which is probably, in my opinion, the best fund in Spain. Uh, Deliver Hero is also an investment investor. Um, Amrest, which is a public traded restaurant owner company and one of the largest in Europe. So we've got some very good investors with different different um, skill sets, which is really good. 
so we can learn from them. They can give us good advice and help us as well on our road. It's, it's interesting to me because when you talk about late stage funding in Europe, uh, a lot of the tech companies say, well, you can't really find um, investors that can do these kind of monster rounds in Europe, uh, even though most of your late stage investors are actually European. So, so you didn't necessarily have to look at the US or China for, for these, these late stage investors. So do you find it easy or do you find it, find it difficult to find them here? Yes, yes and no. It's, it's not difficult to find them. It's, it's difficult to get them to invest. <laughs> uh, they're very easy to find. No, it's, it, it, it seems, you know, everyone sees the amount of funding we had. And, and certainly in Spain, you know, we're, we're an extremely well-funded company compared to most, um, a more, well, in Europe as well. Um, but there's some largely funded companies, huge companies in Europe. Funding rounds have been tough. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not easy. And you've got to, um, we've got to convince them that we're, we're going to be one of the winners in this space. And again, um, we're competing against giants, so we have to we have to have our difference, you know, and say that this this team is going to execute, is executing, and to continue to do so, and able to beat you know some of these big players as we are doing most of you know we compete against guys in and in most of our cities where we operate or countries, um, we're generally you know leader, so we're we're showing we're doing things right. But having said that, humble feet on the ground, we've got a long way to go. Um, we've got to keep demonstrating it, you know, month on month, year on year. Show making the right decisions, improve, make mistakes, learn from them very quickly, um, build solid playbooks in different areas of the business so we can replicate the stuff we're doing with, with supermarket. I think is, I'm, you know, I'm a big fan. Obviously, we're doing it, but I'm a super fan of the dark, dark kitchen and dark, and dark supermarket model. Um, I think it adds a value. It's better operations for the end customer. The customer has a better, the product arrives sooner in better conditions with less failure. We also have more margin. Um, so there's some interesting stuff there that we can build on, um, and the dynamics of retail worldwide is changing. The way people buy, the you know, the way they deal with their local retailers. That's both, I think, that's both restaurants and stores, and we're a part of changing that. Uh, do you foresee raising more funding uh, in the near future? Do you foresee listing, uh, maybe do an IPO uh, in the near future? Um, I think we'll, we'll, we continue, we want to continue growing, um, and our investors, you know, want us to continue growing and be ambitious. So, so, you know, I think we're always on the lookout, um, we're in the space, all the funds, not just European, and we're certainly going to continue funding. Um, we're going public or doing an IPO has really not been talked about. It's, it's, you know, we're not in that stage at all. We're focusing on, on, you know, proving our profitability in, in mature markets and continue growing. Um, and we'll see that if that comes. We do want to depend on ourselves. Um, we want to, you know, we want to be profitable, so we don't need to rely on third party to, and that's our focus. Uh, maybe before we conclude, I uh, neglected to ask, um, what is the policy situation these days in Europe, and how does it affect you as a company? Well, you know, the, the main issue with policy is not with us, not the same worldwide, but but it's a it's a massive topic is the future of work and how gig workers. Um, and we're in 26 countries. We probably have a big debate with politicians, with legislators in four of those 26 countries. I mean, 22, it's not a major issue. In fact, we bring more positive things to the market than others, so it depends on the region. Mainly, this is a big issue and a big regulatory issue in trade unionized countries. Spain is one of those, our home country. France would be one. Italy would be another. Argentina, these are four of the four countries we operate in. But in other countries like Peru or Ecuador or some, or some of the, um, we're actually delivery um, people or, or we're actually paid in cash before. So we're actually fixing a problem. 
this complete transparency when they join a platform because they pay their taxes. It's transparent. They get they get social security rights, um, even though they're freelance. So um, we're actually, you know, working with local governments in a lot of areas in another way, positively, um, and working on some pilots that maybe we can optimize paying taxes on social security real time. So there's some interesting stuff policy-wise that we're doing, but it's, it's you know, it's something that's on the table in this debate. And I think it's good we're here in Paris today because Paris and the way the French government uh, not just Macron, but I was with the Labour Minister yesterday. Um, the way they affront the problem and the issues of future of work, of how they realise the importance of flexibility, of how platform work, not just for blue collar, but also white collar workers is important, and how we want to maintain all these social rights that workers have earned in Europe. We've all gained that from our, from our parents. Uh, we don't want to lose that. So I think that's the discussion, and, and we're definitely part of it, and we want to be part of it. We, we believe firmly that um, the future is flexibility, that those guys who want to work two hours today and six tomorrow or don't want to work tomorrow can do that. Um, but we need to increment their social rights because most most freelance regulation was generally focused for white-collar workers and not blue. And, and as blue-collar workers start using that platform, they need to be protected. And, and we we actually believe that they should be and we, they should be the mechanisms. And if that means us paying a little bit more, no problem. That's a all very interesting, uh, super interesting company. As I mentioned, we're working on late-stage uh, funding uh, in Europe uh, report. We'll be sure to profile Glovo uh, quite prominently. Uh, but thank you so much for your time and best of luck uh, with the rest of the company building. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, 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 welcome back to the podcast of TechEU. This uh, was a great conversation between Robin and Sasha. And now it is time for us to talk about recommendations of the week. So um, if you have been to many tech conferences over the past uh, five or uh, six years or so, you most probably will have seen David Shing, or Shingi as he calls himself, and he's been the self-proclaimed digital prophet at uh, AOL and then Verizon Media for a number of years before announcing that he would be leaving the company a couple of months ago. So for me, seeing this person on stage mostly, it's always been a mystery of what does he actually do? And uh, I guess I'm not the only one who has been wondering about it. That's why my today's recommendation is actually a pretty lengthy interview with him in the New York magazine, in which he explains a lot about uh, what his actual function was. Uh, but I have to say that I'm still not very much sold on the whole idea of a digital profit and uh, everything that comes with it. Uh, but it is still uh, quite an interesting read. Uh, I mean, check it out, uh, especially if you already know uh, who this uh, person is and would like to uh, learn more about uh, the inside workings of uh, Verizon and AOL before that. Yeah, so this guy, Shingy, has quite a distinctive look about him. <laughs> um, Andre, where where did you see him and kind of what context um, did you hear from him? I'm, I'm not sure. It was, uh, I think, last time I saw him was uh, quite a while ago on one of the bigger European conferences, most probably at the Web Summit a few years ago. And uh, normally he would be either on panels or on stage uh, with the futuristic talks, kind of fulfilling the role of the digital prophet and talking about the future of communications and stuff like that. Yeah, really, really interesting hairstyle there. Um, I encourage you to definitely do a Google image search. Quite distinctive. <laughs> yeah, he looks like a very interesting man and I'm pretty sure he is. <laughs> yeah, Natalie, you are doing some great thing today talking about e-scooters instead of me. I really appreciate it. 
Yeah. Well, I wanted to stay in Germany for my recommendation this week, where in Munich, they've just concluded Oktoberfest. So something I look forward to every year where the Munich Police Department, they do a great statistical roundup of the event. And they're always sharing kind of interesting tidbits, such as the number of beer steins that were stolen from the venue and the different items that were turned into the lost and found But according to this reporting by Deutsche Welle, the biggest change to the festival that's been going on for over 200 years is the presence of e-scooters. So anticipating the challenge of e-scooters at the event, they were banned actually from Munich's Oktoberfest venue. Uh, But that didn't stop people from behaving badly with e-scooters. And 414 people were caught riding under the influence and 254 riders lost their automobile driving licenses on the spot for driving e-scooters while intoxicated. According to Munich police spokesman Marcus de Gloria Martins, people, quote, saw e-scooters as lifestyle products or toys and used them accordingly, unquote. E-scooters were only allowed in Germany in June, so it seems like there's a bit more public awareness that needs to happen around their use. And especially because this morning, Berlin's Tier Mobility just raised a 60 million US dollar Series B funding round, which puts it in deep competition with the American scooter company Lime, who is currently trying to take over Europe. So the scooter wars will continue to Andre's delight. Yeah, totally. So Natalie, we were discussing this news uh, before we started recording, so I was thinking maybe we should just include a breathalyzer in each e-scooter in this case and uh, take a (laughs) test before people uh, start driving it. (laughs) Definitely, and I think there should be something they should be able to do if the scooter recognizes it's being driven erotically. But thankfully, the Munich Police Department was out in force really clamping down on on bad behavior out there. I think if there were something in place uh, for the to, to recognize uh, erratic uh, driving for an e-scooter in uh, cities like Brussels with cobblestones, it would just go off every single minute. <laughs> yeah, but I, I have seen um, people driving e-scooters pretty irresponsibly. Who knows? More feed for the for the next podcast to come. So at some point, they will become legal in the UK, and you are probably going to see all this uh, transition period firsthand. It's inevitable. It is. Right. So that's it for today's podcast. Uh, It's time to wrap it up. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, do tell a friend or colleague about the show and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU. If you are not a subscriber yet, subscribe today on your favorite podcast app. Audio engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse. That's sound-pulse.com. Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions, and opinions at Andri at TechEU and Natalie at TechEU. Natalie, thank you so much for joining today. I hope to see you in person soon again me too thanks for having me andre thank you for listening enjoy the rest of the week and talk to you next wednesday bye bye